I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 112 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is a gifted pianist and co-founder and continued member of Little Feet, Bill Payne. When Jimmy Page called Little Feet his favorite American band in 1975, he wasn't alone. Little Feet often ranks near the top in music lovers' lists of the greatest American bands. With its mashup of eclectic rootsy rock, deep-pocketed New Orleans funk, surrealism, humor, and soul, Little Feet occupies a space all of its own. Bill Payne formed Little Feet in 1969 in Los Angeles with singer-songwriter-guitarist Lowell George, who had been playing in Frank Zappa's band. Bassist Roy Estrada and drummer Richie Hayward filled out the original lineup. Payne describes how George and he clicked and began to collaborate. The pair co-wrote four of the ten songs on Little Feet's self-titled debut album from 1971, including Strawberry Flats and Truck Stop Girl. Payne wrote two more on his own, including the kickoff track, Snakes on Everything. The same lineup took a leap that was more artistic than commercial with 1972's Sailing Shoes, which features George's title track, Easy to Slip, and a remake of the first album's Willin'. Payne's contributions include Tripe Face Boogie, Got No Shadow, and Cat Fever. I got cat fever. Little Feet expanded, got funkier, and more successful with Dixie Chicken in 1973. Kenny Gradney replaced Estrada on bass, and the band added second guitarist Paul Barrere and percussionist Sam Clayton. By this point, George was dominating the songwriting with Payne co-writing Walking All Night and Lafayette Railroad. Payne contributed an all-time Little Feet classic, Oh Atlanta, on the next album, Feats Don't Fail Me Now. As Payne tells it, tensions were rising in the band. George, who battled addictions, pulled back on his contributions and the others picked up the slack and took Little Feet into sometimes jazzier territory. It's a sign of what a strong band Little Feet was that even while on a bit of a downswing, its 1978 live album, Waiting for Columbus, remains a milestone. On the recent Black Friday Record Store Day, Rhino released a limited edition 3LP set from the same tour live at Manchester Free Trade Hall 1977. Payne offers vivid, detailed insights into the band's dynamics from its early days through Lowell George's death in 1979 and the posthumous releases Down on the Farm and Hoy Hoy. Payne also revisits his decision to revive Little Feet with the 1988 album Let It Roll, which featured pure Prairie League founder Craig Fuller on vocals. Payne is the only original member still in the band, but Little Feet continues to be active with tour dates coming up. Payne recalls his work as an in-demand session musician as well. Sometimes Little Feet backed other artists in the studio, such as jazz drummer Chico Hamilton on his 1973 deeply groovy instrumental album, The Master, which Kraft Recordings re-released on Black Friday Record Store Day. Little Feet also was the band on Robert Palmer's 1975 album, Pressure Drop. On his own, Payne has played on albums by Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, Emmylou Harris, Bob Seger, Carly Simon, Linda Ronstadt, Dolly Parton, Barbara Streisand, and many others. He not only plays keyboards on many Doobie Brothers records, including the hits What a Fool Believes and Minute by Minute, but for a while he also was a touring member of the band. Bill Payne has been an active, successful working musician for more than 50 years, which is a big feat. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Bill Payne. Just to start off, I, I got the Little Feet uh, live in Manchester Free Trade Hall, Manchester, UK, uh, from July 29th, 1977. Recording of Little Feet that just came out uh, from Rhino, put it out, triple LP for Black Friday uh, Record Story Day. And then two years ago, I got Electrif Lycanthrope uh, live at Ultrasonic Studios, 1974. Uh, 
also a Rhino Black Friday release from two years earlier, double album. Were you involved in sort of putting together these packages? And did you re-listen to these shows before they came out? You know, uh, I think no in both cases, actually. The electric, electric uh, lycanthrope was, uh, I always knew it as this, the broadcast from, uh, you know, the radio broadcast that we did uh, on the East Coast. So I, I was surprised that that's what they, or somebody called it that. And then the uh, the other one, I, I just got as a few days ago, so I, I hadn't really... Um, I, I might have. I listened to a lot of stuff, but it's that's way in the wayback machine, Mark. So I don't know. Right. Sure. Well, I know that the the Manchester recording was part of this big uh, "Waiting for Columbus" box that had come out as well. So there are a lot of different recordings that all were part of that. Um, I'm wondering, in terms of like 1974 versus 1977, like how much of a difference you hear in what where the band was in each of those periods recording. Well, uh, that's a, a really, really good question. And um, I haven't really dug into the nuance of, of really what your question presents. Uh, I think with performances, I, I, I'm not, not delineating a lot from, uh, <clears throat> from how we played in 74 as how we played in 77. Um, in, in 74, uh, I, I know the, 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 the construct of the land that we were dealing with, which was, we we just um, recorded "Feast Don't Fail Me Now," right, nineteen seventy four. So um, we were in a very very good place. Seventy seven, the wheels were starting to come off again. Uh, in terms of how we were all getting along, so so that part of it might have had a little bit of a difference in our playing, but. But we were uh, the stage was was and is our refuge. So when we were up there, if, if we could hear one another, we we're uh, we we're going to play pretty darn well. Is what, I, what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, yeah. In '74, um, you'd had your your the self titled first album, and then Sailing Shoes, which was this kind of you know leap forward, and then Dixie Chicken after that, which was you know the sort of the bigger band and funkier, and then Feats Don't Fail Me Now, which is just this very lively record. And so you could feel like there was this kind of rise of of this band that you guys are capturing in that live performance. And uh, by the by 77, you're doing Time Loves a Hero. Um, you just had a uh, last record album before that. And and as you were saying, you weren't maybe getting along as well. On the other hand, that's when you recorded Waiting for Columbus, which is considered one of the great live albums. So something was working at that point. I think the music was was generally always working. It was the it was the filigree coming from other areas that got in the way, right? Uh, so we're we're not unlike any other band, uh, as it turns out. <laughs> that uh, whether we get along or not, as long as we can, like as I said earlier, as long as we could hear one another on stage, the odds are we would be pretty well. I think uh, true is true, especially back then. I mean. Um, the, the Manchester recordings were without the horns, so it was a way for us to kind of warm up for waiting for Columbus and, and play before we got in with, with with the whole nine yards of things. And I I, I surprised that the uh, um, I mean we sound good with horns, we sound great with horns, and we sound great without them too. Right, in my opinion. When you look back on kind of the high points of Little Feet throughout the years, and you've been you've been with them longer than anyone else, are your are your high points on stage, or are they in the studio, or are they in the sort of creation of the songs to begin with? Well, I think they're on stage primarily, at least with the band um, in the era that we're talking about, which is with Lowell, right? Yeah. Uh, beyond, beyond that, uh, we had times in the studio with you know when we put out let it roll there was recordings of that nature that were were really uh texas twister was a song that comes to mind where we were really hitting it richie was uh, uh at the peak of his powers in that that time frame uh, paul was was on fire then as well um but yeah i think we were primarily 
uh, comfortable as a live band in the 70s. And our recordings were a little more like trying to sneak up on a glass of water to get a drink. You know, wow. the last record album. That album to me was pretty, it felt pretty stiff when we recorded it. Uh, but for, for a lot of people, I mean, this is just the beauty of music and of subjectivity, right? For a lot of people, that album really shone through as a, as a, a well-recorded, well-played record. They People just loved it. And I thought, you know, we, we won the, uh, it was the most popular album in Germany that year. I said, I told you it was stiff. <laughs> it was, you know, um, yeah, my, my perspective on these things is sometimes a little different. I, I, I was having a, I was having a bit of a tough time during during the making of that record, personally. But uh, uh, I think Little Feet's at its best when all those syncopations and things that we're known for, when those are really loose and and they come through, the, the feel comes through. I wasn't sure the feel because uh, we didn't really have a lot of songs that were geared in that fashion. I think that was a, a day or night was one of those tunes on there that actually was very good. But God, compared to the way we play it now, just no contest. Right. When so you grew up in Texas, you were living in California when you formed Little Feet, as I understand. When when you were sort of learning piano and thinking, I want to be in a band, was this the kind of band you envisioned being in? What was the kind of stuff that you were into at that time? Well, um, I'm gonna correct you slightly. Uh, I was born in Texas in Waco, uh, but raised in California from two uh, two years on. Okay. Um I'm, I'm writing a I'm writing a book right now. It's called Carnival Ghosts. It's a memoir, and uh, I described, you know, up until age 15, when my music teacher Ruth Newman uh, died quite suddenly. Actually, uh, I was up in Santa Maria, where I was going to live, but I was still coming back to Ventura, California, to take lessons uh, when Ruth passed away, and I got into some trouble down in Ventura um, with drinking. It was just like over uh, overnight, but then the cops said to, they found me and my friend. He was okay. I, they had to take me to the hospital, pump my stomach out, and all this good, crazy stuff. But my parents came down to pick me up the next morning. I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> and my, my mother says, hey, there's a band up in Santa Maria, uh, the uh, fellow's mother called up wanted to know if you wanted to audition for the group and i said oh well yeah i guess you know so i auditioned to play drums i didn't audition to play piano oh. they had a piano set up when i was at the audition i like ambled over there standing up lifted the lid it was on a upright piano and started playing they go hang on you play the piano and i go well i guess and uh they said, forget this band. We got a band down the street. It's called the Debonairs. You're going to play keyboards in this group. And uh, so th that's a long-winded way of answering your question. I, I didn't really think of what kind of band I would play in. I was, uh, I was listening to everything that most people were listening to. The Beatles, uh, Elvis Presley, Fats uh, Domino, Little Richard, um, Alley Oop, you know, um, I I did improvisational playing as a kid, and shortly before Ruth died, she sent me over with two guys. Uh, one was a drummer, and the other was a, a guitar player. And we went into the Presbyterian Church and played um, in a room there, and that was it. I didn't think I didn't think anything about joining a band even at that time. And you thought about being a drummer in a band first. Yeah, just uh, I don't know why it was a, a convoluted thinking, to be honest with you. But that's I, I like sharing that story with people because I think most people think, oh, when you're growing up and you're listening to all these things, you must be grooming yourself for something. And in my day and age, it was grooming yourself to be in a band. Right. Well, that's not what I was doing. And in fact, I didn't know what I was being groomed for. Um I could play classical music, but I've got very small hands. Um, I think what my mother and my teacher were grooming me for was 
a guy, a kid that could play off the top of his head, uh, was a fair a, a classical pianist, but had a, an, an, uh, a pretty good ability to, to sit down at a piano and just make it speak. Right. But you would learn drums at some point as well, or were you just be like, I could drum? Sure. I was just, I was just, I was just playing things. I, I wouldn't say I learned it. My brother played pretty good drums too, and so we'd set up the record player and play along with the band or with, you know, whomever that we could find. What and, was the, uh, What was the first song you tried to write or wrote? The first, one of the first songs I wrote was um, it was called "Tripping Out." And it was in 60, 66, maybe 67. Um, it was a, I was on Psychedelic Label, Acid Head Productions. I, had, I didn't have a clue what any of it meant back then. A couple months later, three months, four months later, I knew exactly what LSD was, and, and we were off and running. But um, um, yeah, it was with a group called Something Wild. And so there's... Uh, it was one of those Central California coast <laughs> psychedelic bands, basically. And we were jamming back then, too. So that was uh, something that I uh, I was okay with jamming. I really didn't like going in and playing on the A or D chord for a half hour. It wasn't really my style, but, but that's what a lot of people were doing back then. So, and, and you met Lowell George through... It was kind of a Zappa connection. He'd been doing stuff with Zappa, and you—is that how you like you like someone you were, you went into talked about one band, and they said, "Oh, here, talk to this guy," or how did that work? I um, I made a call from Santa, the Santa Barbara area. I'd heard an album called Uncle Meat, which is Frank's Frank's band, right? And I, Lowell was on it, but I didn't know who Lowell was. Um, I'd been listening to the Mothers since probably, I don't know, whenever the first uh, Mothers and Vince record, uh, Help I'm a Rock and all that came out. Um, so I was, I'd just been up in Northern California and I thought, I'm not adjusting to it up there. It's too cold. I I couldn't find anybody really to play with. Um, but I sure liked Frank, so I, I, I made a call to see if I could meet Frank. And they said, well, he's over, he's going to be over in Europe. Well, we introduced you to somebody else who then, when I met him, he says, you know what? I also play keyboards. This is not going to work. Uh, Jeff Simmons was his name from a group, group called Eureka, which was a satellite band for one of, of Zappa's labels. Um, at any rate, I went back to Warner Brothers uh I was talking to this lady there that, wor uh, that worked as a secretary there. And she said, well, I'll give you Lowell's number that Jeffrey Simmons gave you. And um, he gave me Lowell's name. And I connected with Lowell, and that's how we met. And by the time I met Frank Zappa, which was about three weeks later after I made my first meeting with Lowell, uh, I'd already decided to be in a band with Lowell. And forget about joining Frank. I never auditioned for Frank Zappa's band, which a lot of people think I did, but I didn't. What was it about you and Lowell that clicked? I think just our uh, overall conversation about music, life, uh, what we were reading, what we were listening to, what our hopes and aspirations were, that kind of thing. Anything you do with friends, uh, we, we, we hit it off uh, rather well initially. And, and you two co-wrote several songs, especially on that first Little Feet album. What was that experience like? How did you guys collaborate? Well, it was uh, his mother had a piano at his house. It was his blonde spinet piano. Uh, if you touched the key, it was like a bomb going off. It was not a lot of nuance to it, um, but it was it was great for uh, for songwriting. And Lowell would sit there with an acoustic guitar initially and. Later, maybe with an electric guitar, and we'd, we'd sit and we'd uh, think of uh, things to write about. So well, one of the very first songs we wrote was uh, um, a Truck Stop Girl, which I look at as a bookend uh, to, uh, to Willen. Willen, he had already written um, by the time I had 
entered the scene. And um, I still think, though, that the, the version that we cut of Willen on Sailing Shoes is the definitive cut of that song. Right. And that made it iconic, uh, not the other way around. I, th- I thought, for my money, uh, the, on the first album, Little Feet, uh, Willen was a, uh, which I didn't play on, um, and that's not the reason I feel this way. I was I I came down to L.A. and I, I asked if he knew who Conway Twitty was, and I'm sure he heard of Conway, George Jones. I was listening to country western music, a lot of it in terms in, in addition to rock and roll. So I brought that with me down to L.A. and we also uh, were uh, even back then we're bouncing things with Clif- Clifton Chenier and his brother Cleveland and, and that kind of thing, Professor Longhair, uh, James Brown, etc. So. We were both rather eclectic on our tastes. Um, um, I'm currently looking for a couple of charts that I had <laughs> a few weeks ago, and I can't find them, but they're, the, the songs were Dancing the Nubile Virgin Slaves and 10,000 Whips. They're both instrumentals. And uh, we played some of that for Ahmed Erdogan, who is the head of, uh, of uh, ATCO with, with Atlantic Records. And... <laughs> And we played him a few other songs on top of that, but he goes, boys, it's too diverse. And so we went back to the drawing board. And, and for people that listen to that first album, the titles alone kind of give you an idea of the, uh, the eclectic nature of it. Hamburger Midnight, Brides of Jesus, <laughs> Captain Gunboat Willie, Strawberry Flats. Um, I don't think Doraville was on there, maybe. Uh, anyway, you, you get the idea. There was right. a lot of different kind of ebb and flow to that record. Uh, on Sailing Shoes, Lowell and I began writing less with each other. I think he wanted to, to form a little distance between himself um, as a leader of the band and as one that was, um, you know, could have more of a vision of what he, he wanted as a, a singular guy, but he was still in a band. And so I, I wrote Tribe Face Boogie with Richie Hayward. Right. Uh, Cat Fever, uh, Got No Shadow. So I was still writing, and what I was trying to do was learn how to sing. Uh, Lowell, Lowell was a great singer throughout, but his his vocals between the first and second album really really took a, 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 a great upward swing. Um, and we start to hear the Lowell George that we, we heard for, for years thereafter. How caught up were you all in like how well commercially these records did? Well, I was stupid enough to was it stupid or ignorant um, to to think that because of the reviews we were getting on that first album in Rolling Stone from Ed Ward and from others um, that we'd be rich and famous within six months from then. <laughs> it it was not to be. Uh, in fact, the Warner's was going to drop us after that first album. And thanks to the intervention of Van Dyke Parks, who was making his one of his albums, Discover America, uh, he and Lowell were writing a song called Sailing Shoes. I think, I don't know how much Van Dyke participated in Sailing Shoes, because it wound up that it was just, a, a, I think, a Lowell George song. At any rate, uh, Van Dyke went to the mat for us and said, I'm not releasing my record unless you keep uh, Little Feet on, on Warner Brothers. And they uh, rethought it, uh, agreed with him, and, and we had a career going. So they almost dropped you before you recorded Sailing Shoes then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, that was, uh, I, 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 I didn't know it either. Yeah. I, I had no idea that was in the works, and probably a good thing, too, because I was freaked out enough as it was. But, uh, um yeah, so between both albums, I think the first album sold 11,000 copies, maybe. Uh, and the Sailing Shoes maybe sold 2,000 more, like 13,000. So they were not commercial hits in any way, shape, or form. But there was a, um, we are like everybody's secret surfing spot. Now, those in the know knew Little Feet. Right. And those that knew Little Feet loved Little Feet. So it was, it was a cult, cult kind of band. 
Well, and back then, you know, bands would, you know, release an album a year. And part of the exciting thing of following a band is seeing them grow from record to record. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Sailing Shoes, you guys sound like a more sort of comfortable band in what you're doing. Not that not that you don't sound comfortable in, in Lil Feet, but there's, there's kind of a more kind of i don't know if this is right but like relaxed confidence to sailing shoes like you kind of you guys are sort of getting into this groove does that sound right and then and then dixie chicken then you have a new bass player and you and you've expanded the lineup and then that's sort of this other leap i think that's accurate i, th- I think that uh relaxed is one way to put it uh we were frenetic on the on the outskirts or the boundaries of of that relaxed core that made up sailing shoes what we were allowed to do, and then Richie and I in particular, but Lowell's a part of it as well. Roy Estrada was playing bass for us. But um, we had our own little playground out of the Warner's lot where they let us rehearse. And within the context of that, on this, this people can't see it, but this is the Salem Jews re-release, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm showing for the camera here. Right. And... There are um, outtakes and rarities on this record that are um, worth hearing. Sailing Shoes, it says it's a demo. And when they played it for me, I go, that's not me playing piano. And I thought about it. I go, I bet you that's Van Dyke Parks. And that's who it was. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, Rototone is one of the songs on there. Rototone was a tune that Elliot Ingber, who was a guitar player for the Mothers of Invention, and he was in a band with Richie Hayward called the Fraternity of Man, which were an easy rider. And they had that song, Don't Bogart That Joint, in that movie. I guess this is the book I'm writing, but it's also just that the facts are that, that we, we were in the midst of, of a, lot of, a lot of things culturally and otherwise at that time period, which would have been in 1970, 1970 1971. Uh, we started the band in 69. But the um, the repercussions of all that frenetic playing that we were doing were then harnessed and and brought into a uh, with the help of Lowell, both Lowell and uh, Ted Templeman, uh, where we settled down and started playing more like not studio musicians, but like where we're we're uh, taking a little more time to to to. Uh, to build on what what the songs needed, not not some crazy stuff we might have attempted before that we're attempting outside of the studio, but it felt it felt right to do that because we were able to do both. Um, so the recordings were a little more stayed, our our playing live and and certainly when we were rehearsing was uh, um, I, I likened Richie and I to two crisscrossing her. Uh, um, cyclones reverberating off the walls. How did the arrangements come together? Would someone, you know, whether it was Lull or you bring in the song or play a demo and then you would all start playing it and adding your parts? Did did the songwriter kind of direct like, look, I want this part to sound like this? Or was it really more of an organic, all right, we got the, we have the foundation of it that the songwriter brought in and now we're going to build it up as a Little Feet song? I think it was, it was probably a little more organic. Um, at that time, we would um, have um, the song played, and then we'd sit, and maybe Lowell and I would have gone over to Face Boogie before, just to get the chord changes and everything down. Um, but the, the arrangement was pretty much there, I, I think. And uh, um, the, the song that we, we held the most hope for was Easy to Slip. Um, it sounded like a single. Um, it's a wonderfully recorded song, um, but it, it also pointed out that, as I recall, that because uh, Lowell was playing both rhythm and then he was playing stuff over the top of it, that maybe Lowell, Richie and I thought maybe Lowell needed some help in the future because uh, he had had this accident with his uh, an airplane propeller uh, on a a little, he used to take um, model airplanes and fly them in Griffith Park. And this thing flew off the 
a wood block and nearly it nearly hit his face, but he, he put his hand up in front and short tore the hell out of his hand. So uh, he started playing some more slide stuff. And so after that album, we, we um, Richie and I went out, checked out Paul Barrere out of the loft in Los Angeles. He was with a group called the Lead Anima. <laughs> and, but he's a blues player. And uh, Lowell knew Paul from from Hollywood High. Lowell went to Hollywood High. I think his brother did as well. Paul and his brothers, Michael and uh, Robert, went to Hollywood High as, as well. I think Paul was thrown out of the school. So uh, they all had a lot in common. So you brought in Paul, and uh, and that was part of the sort of lineup shakeup before Dixie Chicken then. Yeah. Uh, I also kept notes on things. I was pretty involved. You know, I wasn't the leader of the band. Um, we had Ted Tupperman as a producer. I had notes that were directing, like, what did we need to rehearse? What songs were still questionable? Uh, let's choose between Fright Face Boogie, Dixie Chicken. <laughs> uh, there were four tunes, and we chose Triface, right? But I was amazed to see that Dixie Chicken was already uh, in the lineup. When you're doing sailing shoes. Yeah, in, in the sailing shoes area. In fact, I on my notes, I called it the second album. And uh, there's a song called Trouble, and I call that Tired Eyes or something. And your eyes are tired. <laughs> so I was calling it Tired Eyes for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i was always pretty good at organization um even if i couldn't figure out whether i should play drums or piano to audition for a band i was still pretty good at at organizing things because of playing bach um of mozart beethoven etc um, the piano is is a large instrument and uh, uh an orchestra at your fingertips so i i i I also played pipe organ uh, at various churches in Ventura, Santa Maria, Santa Paula, et cetera. Nice. In California. So I, I had to uh, have a certain amount of chops to follow what the program was and and adhere to that, know when to catch signals and, and this and that. Um, you know, was, I, that. That's how I was trained. And also trained to be able to play um, what I wanted to play. I mean, not, not just sitting there and reading music. I was able to, to and encouraged to, to play what was in my head. And was... Yeah, the song Dixie Chicken seems like it's a good example because it's a lull song, but the piano part that you're playing is is key to the identity of that song. And I'm wondering if you remember kind of how you guys all came up with that arrangement and your part on it. Well, it was pretty natural. I, I didn't really think of it. There was, although the the lick, um, because you can hear this, I'll play it. I mean, for the listeners out there. Awesome. What made that song that... Uh, <laughs> that business there, normally it would have been... Uh, <laughs> so... It, it just added a uh, an element that I actually heard or thought I heard in a song that we did with um, on the first album. It was uh, How Many More Years? And the, the lick was a descending lick. Da, da, boo, da, ba, ba. And I thought the guy was playing like an E over an A, but also was, was going to that, instead of the G sharp, going to the G natural, which is what, makes up a seventh chord in music. So when you're singing the blues, they don't go. They can, they can swing back and forth between that, that G or G sharp. It's a really exotic uh, element. So I decided I'm going to make it a sixth, a B and a G sharp, throw it over the A and, it just immediately had a, uh, a, a a feel to it and a sound to it that I, I just thought, well, this this is pretty cool. I didn't realize that it was sort of an iconic lick, but it was. 
Yeah. So at the time it was just something you guys were doing. I mean, did, did people react or lol react going, wait a minute, what the hell are you doing? That's really awesome. If he did, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same thing like in two trains. We were good at coming in and throwing licks on on the songs. Uh, Fat Man in the Bathtub. That's my lick. I mean, I don't claim to be a writer on the song, but I was pretty good at, as later Paul was, Paul Barrer, um, at embellishing uh, key licks that gave gave a song a uh, uh, a recognizable element in it, other than the song itself. Were the dynamics in the band changing as you got to, you know, Dixie Chicken is the third album and Feats Don't Fail Me Now, which is the fourth, which you, where you guys sound like a really, you know, just very together band on that. Um, you, you have Oh Atlanta is one of your songs on that, which is classic. Um, Skin mm-hmm. It Back was one of Paul's. Uh, Rock and Roll Doctor, it starts off with one of Lowell's. So it seems like, you know, everyone's kind of clicking on on that one. Was that, was it, was it clicking you know, outside the studio as well? Or like, what was the band dynamic like at that point? The, the band dynamic before Beats Don't Fail Me Now was a disaster. And it wasn't because we didn't like each other. It was because commercially, it was very difficult to tour. It was expensive. Um, we weren't sure what to do. Um, Bob Cavallo was our manager along with Joe Ruffalo. But Cavallo was our, our main guy. And he had suggested, look, uh, Steve Boone has a studio that we could utilize back in Maryland called Blue Seas. There was an engineer, George Massenberg, that was over at Barclay in uh, Paris. Uh, that we, well, I didn't know him. I don't think anybody did, but, but uh, we'd, uh, Bob had heard of him. And he was brought back to work with us on this record. A lot of very good things happened. Uh, it was really ingenious of them to to set us up as they did, where we we would have um, a, a cushion. And what developed out of it was a relationship with with a part of the country that we didn't really know was was in our camp, which is Washington D.C., Baltimore, that whole area. Of, of, of the world. Um, Emmy Lou Harris is somebody that we met back there. Uh, Fran Tate, um, who was later Fran Payne, I I met her. In fact, Emmy Lou and her came to the studio to meet George Massenburg. So um, Robert Paul, we did a Robert Palmer record, uh, Pressure Drop there. Right. People think that we were playing on um, Sneaking Sally Through the Alley. That was the meters. Right. Involved. So I was talking to Leo Lesantelli on a aboard this um, this cruiser. Just, we were just on a, a ship a few weeks ago. And I was talking to him about that because uh, he said there was a, a record that Lowell was playing on of theirs. And the song Just Kiss My Baby was one of the tunes. And I said, we, we, we didn't give him credit for it. And he said, we didn't, it, it's not that we didn't want to give him credit. We for, it just slipped through the cracks. And I said, not to worry that happened all the time. It still does. So. Yeah. I had him as a guest uh, a few months ago, actually. And he was, he was great. I was, and I was kind of curious whether you consider like the meters sort of your contemporaries or if there are other bands that you thought, Oh yeah, these are, these are the bands that are, contem- that are our contemporaries right now as little feet. You know, I really, I never thought of them like that. I, I just, um, because the New Orleans connection we had was not based on them. It was based on maybe some of their writing. I mean, uh, not even so much writing, but I would have, I was lifting more from uh, from Professor Longair than the meters, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but I loved what they were doing. And, and then, but little Richard had a, had a certain thing going on, too, as did Fats Domino. There's a song when I was a kid, probably fifth grade, maybe fourth, but I think fifth grade. And it was uh, by the Olympics. It's called Big Boy Pete. 
And that had some really cool stuff on it. So, um, yeah, I love the meters. I love the Neville brothers, all those cats. And I was telling somebody a story about George Porter yesterday, bass player with those guys. And um, I, I kind of view them like I like, like I would view, um, uh, uh, Los, Los Lobos. They're probably, they probably are, you know, contemporaries and all that. I mean, but we're, we're just other bands and we're, we're just guys that love playing music. Right. Yeah. I think early on, I, I think every American band was getting compared to the band at that point, including Little Feet. And then, and then sure. you, guys, you guys got kind of funkier than the band. So. Now those, that's a very good, I'm glad you brought that up because that example there with Leon Russell and how did you, how did you term it? Uh, or, or, it wasn't contemporaries. You used a different term, I think. I think I think I said contemporaries originally, just like the bands that you sort of looked at as like your peers. Yeah, peers. Well, the, the, definitely the peers for me were, were Leon Russell, uh, the band. Those those guys were, and there were certain players uh, um, that I that I view as, as well in that regard. Um, the other people was more. I don't know. Like like I said, I wasn't differentiating. Because I didn't really grow up listening to the meters. I didn't know that much about them other than the fact that what, what I heard sounded great. And but I wasn't trying to cop them or anything. It was just we were we were all dr drawing from a similar pool. Um, they were from New Orleans. Well, Rich, uh, Kenny and Sam were born in that area. And this came through a different person. I said, well, tell the guy I play Mozart. I'm not from Vienna, Austria. I'm, I'm, uh, I play Beethoven. I'm not from Germany. I play Bach and I'm not from Germany. Is that okay with him? And so I never looked at it as a territorial uh, thing. I didn't look at it as in order to play blues, you had to be black. Um, I'm playing with guys in the studio like Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper and uh, Charlie Muscle White. I mean, it's not about it's not about color. It's about where do you where do you put the music? I'm not saying that it doesn't have anything to do with it. Of course it does. That's what they came up with. I I didn't you know that's why we revered Helen Wolf, Muddy Waters. Now, we have an album that we just recorded with Sam Clayton uh, down in Memphis called Sam's Place. And uh, that's going to be coming out in May, I think. Uh, some great blues music on that. And we get to feature Sam for a change. So, um, yeah, music is music as far as I'm concerned. I, uh, I'm i not a purist. Speaking of session work you guys did, uh, another Record Store Day Black Friday release uh, on craft recordings was this Chico the Master. And this is, Ooh, this yeah. is Chico Hamilton, the drummer, playing with little feet and it's uh yes. it's just all these very funky instrumentals uh you guys sound great but you're right there uh you know bill Payne piano um and then it also credits george lowell slide guitar <laughs> so they got his name reversed <laughs> good old george lowell do you do you remember yeah, that yeah. session at all and like it, it seems like that would have fallen right in that sort of period maybe between dixie chicken and uh feet don't fail me now or just right around then you know, it's I, I would probably have to really listen to that record again and, and through, you know, the, the different platforms that we have available. I could do that easily, I guess. But I haven't heard that album in a long time. Um, Forrest, oh God, Forrest Hamilton uh, brought us into that record. And Forrest is related in some form or fashion to Kenny Gradney. And... Um, so it must have been Chico's son, I suppose. So Chico Hamill is going to be related to, to Kenny Gradney as well. But yeah, that was, it, it was a, an easy and fun record to make. It was about all I remember about it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's an int it's interesting for, you know, an established band in the middle of their career to just sort, sort of go off and just do a, do a full album with the jazz drummer, as well as, you know, for that matter, backing Robert Palmer on, pressure drop so you guys are just keeping busy all the time 
Yeah, Kathy Dalton was another person we worked with. Um, there was a group that Van Dyke Parks reminded me of. It was most of the guys on Little Feet. It was a group called Happy End. And uh, they had a big hit down in Tokyo. Years later, there was uh, Kiko Yano. Um, I don't think I played on that record, but everybody else did. And she had a a, a big hit down in Japan with that record. So um, Little Feet was always sort of loaning ourselves out to folks. And I was doing a lot of session work as well back then. So Yeah, it know. seems like you were doing a lot. I mean, you were I mean, I know that you played more officially with the Dewey brothers later, but it looks like you're on some of their earlier records too, again, in this whole period. Yeah, uh I think uh, one one of the um ancillary benefits of of Ted producing us was um I, I know he and Lowell really hit it off well. And um but uh, Ted got a view of how I played and he thought, oh, let me bring him in with the doobies to play some piano. So I was on their second album, which was called Toulouse Street. Right. And and then began to, to work with them thereafter. Even when Michael McDonald was brought into the band, um, they asked me to play piano. I said, Michael, play me this track. <laughs> I go, I, you play this, I can't play it. And the song was uh, minute by minute. And so there's two songs that they wanted me to play on that I had him play, but I I played some synth and high parts, string parts. I constructed a sound for uh, uh, What a Fool Believes, and I played high strings to that as well. So uh, Michael's, to this day, uh, well, what a wonderful guy he is, and boy. I can say that on the, the, the favor was returned with us on a song I wrote called um, uh, Red Stream Liner. And I had Pat Simmons and, and uh, Michael McDonald sing backgrounds on that. And they had never on their own albums sang with each other. I'd seen that you were on uh, What a Fool Believes and Minute by Minute. I'm like, oh, those are like the two, the two big ones from, from that record, certainly. Yeah, no, I was proud to be on them and uh, proud to have helped develop a synthesizer sound that everybody and his brother that played since was emulating thereafter for at least two years. So that was, that was fun. It was nothing that I would have put on a, a Little Feet record only because we didn't write that kind of song. So uh, um, it's, uh, it, was, it was fun. It was, it was good stuff. And, you know, and, and again, earlier you're playing with Bonnie Raitt, with Carly Simon, with uh, with uh, Jackson Brown, um, Emmylou Harris, uh, Pieces of the Sky album, among others. Are there any of these sessions that you remember as being particularly gratifying, memorable, horrible, people being difficult, people being wonderful? Like, what was what was that sort of side of your career like, the session part of it? Well, uh, mainly everything was, was really good, you know. Uh... Jackson at one point wanted me to play like him. I said, why don't you just play the song yourself? You play it perfectly well. And he did. I said, if you want me to play again stuff with you in the future? Uh, and I had already played on one song. I think it was on his second album. Um, but I, I said, you know, I'll take direction, but I want to put myself into it as well. So that's that's what we worked out. Um Henry Lou Harris was a, and Jackson too, by the way, they're both, both a joy. In fact, the second album I played on with Jackson was, uh, I didn't play on the title track, which is The Pretender, which is written about Fred Tackett, who's in our band now. Um, but uh, Here Come Those Tears Again was a good one I played on. And, and uh, yeah, I was, I was a sought after session player. Um, Fred was an, a sought after session player as well. And and uh, there's just a lot, a lot of stories that go along with that. So uh, the negatives were just um, uh, very few and far between. They mainly had to do with did the producer want to do 40 takes instead of choosing the second take that was the one that he was going to gravitate to anyway, that kind right. of thing. So... Um, and just musicians in general are are pretty. Uh, we're, we're not just built to uh, 
to deal with authority <laughs> very well. Um, and when I was um, I was at Fred Tack and hanging out with uh, Roger Bobo, who was a was one of the world's foremost tuba players, classically trained and, and played all the cool stuff. But he was telling us about Zubin Mehta, who was the uh, conductor of the LA Philharmonic, and he said the musicians would talk to one another. Said, "Don't look at him; he'll throw you off when he's conducting." He doesn't follow the score. So it was just, you know, I'm sure Zuman made, I knew exactly what he was doing. It was, was wonderful at what he did. But that was the way musicians were and still are. Aeropop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Revolution's beers are brewed only in Chicago using pure Lake Michigan water. These include the best-selling anti-hero IPA and the collectible cans covering football, hockey, basketball, and baseball, the new Super Zero sparkling hop water, and the PB Eugene, a robust porter enlivened by sweet, creamy peanut butter. In Chicago, you can get Revolution fresh from the tap at the Brewery and Tap Room in Avondale or the original brew pub in Logan Square. Go to RevBrew.com and at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. about writing oh atlanta how that that came to you and you presented it to the band it's kind of a poem about birds on the wire and this and that and later i i started talking about watching the planes take off and this sort of thing and so i didn't have it constructed around anything in particular other than the airport in kentucky which is across from cincinnati ohio uh, but the first time i played the song for anybody which was um we were in the studio. I think we were working on uh, an arrangement for Rock and Roll Doctor that Alan Toussaint had uh, um, arranged some horns for. I played it for everybody during the break, and everybody looked at me like, yeah, so what? And I, I was so mortified by the reaction. I said, look, we're playing this goddamn song, whether you like it or not. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> So um, uh, the, the last and the next time that happened to me was uh, we, were, we had a five week rehearsal with uh, Let It Roll. And Richie goes, I don't like the song. I didn't like Let It Roll, the tune. And I like took it out of the, re- the rehearsal rotation for about a couple of weeks. And I went, finally, well, I went back to him and I agonized over. I go, Can you hear what I'm playing? He goes, No. I go, Okay. We're going to make sure you can hear what I'm doing, and we're going to play this song again, whether you like it or not. And it was a title track for the record, too. Right. So, so I, I, I've all, I mean, listen, I've had a few songs. But I, I actually don't know what they are, but I mean, I'm sure I've written more than a couple that maybe were not the best songs to, that I could have come up with or that appeared on a Little Feet record. But in general, uh, I feel pretty good about what I write. So. So the dynamic of the band you guys are making Feats Don't Fail Me Now is you come up with yeah. Atlanta, you played for them, they're like, yeah, whatever. And but you could just say, look, we're doing the song, and everyone would go along with it because you said so. And it, as opposed to them saying, No, we're vetoing this or something. Uh I don't think they wanted to veto me. Honestly, I think they they're they're entitled to an opinion. Everybody is, obviously. Um, but when I dug my heels in, there just wasn't a lot of getting around me. That's all. And, uh, right. I I later carried that through with, with with meeting certain people that were were intimidating and stuff. I said, look, I spent twelve years with Lowell George, or ten years with Lowell George, and um, uh, if if Lowell George didn't intimidate me, they're certainly not going to. Hmm. I assume at some point people got behind that song because it is one of the standout songs you guys did. I think it was just a matter of mood, of. Uh, Maybe I didn't. Maybe I shouldn't have played it that evening for him. I don't know. I mean, maybe I should have read the room a little better. But um, 
at any rate, with, with, with music, it's because of the subjective nature of music and film, of food, of anything that you have to weigh in on, sometimes you need to, to take a little bit of a break and reevaluate what it is you're trying to do. And if all the initial shock of being turned down by somebody, you uh, on a song basis at any rate, you go, you know what, I really do believe in this song. I'm going to reapproach them with it. Then that, generally speaking, that, 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 that throws another element of pressure, not only on them, but on you to make sure you uh, are articulating what you want to say. Right. So on those those last albums, uh, the last Little Feet albums with Lil George on them, he's he seems to sort of step back. It seems like it's more of a sort of democratic, like you know, everyone sort of writing songs, and he's not as dominant as he was, like for instance, on Dixie Chicken or something like that. Was was that a function of everyone else in the band stepping up, him pulling back, him maybe? battling with his demons at that point a little bit and some substance issues like what was what, what was changing in the dynamic there i think i think any and all of that i think that uh well you know paul and i were later accused of of taking away lowell's creative uh, prowess and i said okay you know uh listen to his solo record if that's the case, why are there so few Lowell George songs on that solo record that took him five years to make? He was the one that drew back. We didn't push him back. But by our moving forward with things, it's the, what do they call it? You know, when, when the the uh, dead air demands that be filled, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, we We were there to with an opening to uh, present other things. And Lowell was a, he wasn't an obstacle to much of anything, uh, at least not initially, but he was more an obstacle to himself. And that was the sad part about it. Were you, were you worried about him in those that, you know, in those later years? I mean, did you have a sense of, Oh, things are just not coming out well. I worried about him. I worried about Paul, Richie, uh, the era that you were a little kid in, was people were dropping like flies. Start with Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones. That trend kept through John Belushi, through, through Jerry Garcia. It was a long and arduous and, and horrible trend that people were were um, succumbing to their demons. And Law was a part of that, right? It doesn't delineate or it doesn't say who they were as human beings or what their genius was. It, it shows their what took them out. And um, I think there's a big difference between what took somebody out, whether it was a cold, a toothache in the heel, or they took too many drugs or whatever the hell happened, or their heart failed. Um, what happened before that? Where was a genius with law with, with, um, um, the guy that wrote rock and roll, Dr. Cole, 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 the fat man of bathtub, Willen. Who's that guy? Uh, that's what my book is about. I think the rest of it is kind of like beatnik poetry. Cut a bunch of names up, put it in the hat, pull them out, and there, there's where you, you see all the, the linkage to, to that particular um, frame of society and of an era, as I said. Um, you know, I want to know who those people were. I love biographies. It was Harry Truman before we thought of him as Harry Truman. Uh, that kind of thing. It was right. uh, Winston Churchill. I mean, you, whenever you get to know somebody intimately, you're going to find out that they, their, their humanness is what made them great, vulnerable, and all the rest. But their greatness has to battle through being vulnerable, through being uh, making bad decisions, um, coming up with some great decisions. I mean, it's it is an uneven territory. It's like health. Uh, following surgery, a friend of mine described it from I think the Mayo Clinic said it is not a 
it's, it's not an even uh, proposition. Um, you're not going to feel good on Monday and feel great on Friday. You, you might take a few steps back in between, steps forward. It's just the way life is, you know? Well, and it's hard enough for, you know, all these creative people in a band who each has his own, you know, stuff that he's writing, ways that he likes to play, for you all to kind of congeal, you know, on stage and 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 get your records together and everything without all these other issues happening at the same time with, you know, just people's health and, and everything else. I mean, it's hard to make a band work, and especially after so many years in that era, I would think. Yeah. So when you have those those snapshots um, of music, which are what records represent and what live performances that were captured on tape represent, uh, it's, it's not much different than photography or anything else where we're where we're arriving, where we we capture a certain thing at a certain point in time in our lives, and that's representative of where we were on Wednesday, nineteen fifty four. 1964, 1974, on and on. on. Um, where, are we, where are we going to be in 2024? All those questions apply. I mean, we're not saying it's not a, it's nothing new, but for an artist, the the uh, the, the ability once again to to be and to be a part of something, which is why I like being in Little Feet. It's a great it's a great vehicle, and it always has been for. Or being able to um, uh, formulate a platform to speak from that that is so uh, uh, eclectic, iconic enough to to make you think twice before you dive into the pool, um, before you really start to say something. You're in competition with yourself, and there yeah, weren't competition with Lowell. But Lowell didn't write all that you dream. He sang it. He didn't write it. Paul Brea wrote it. I wrote a little bit of it. Um, Lowell wrote what he what he did, which I mentioned a few times. You know, with with uh, uh, I'm in trouble is a long distance love is a well constructed tune. Uh, Richie's part on it is flawless. In fact, when Tony Leone, who plays drums with us, I had him play that song. I want you to play it like Richie, and then I want to play it like Tony. He did both. He didn't get it by coming and bashing out a song on Batman and the Bathtub. I wanted to hear the nuance he'd play on the hi-hat. He did it beautifully. And, uh, so I'm protective about our legacy, about our musicianship, the songs that we write. And we're writing for a new record right now. We just completed this blues album with Sam Clayton. Um, there's one original song on there. Um, but yeah, there's... There's uh, Little Feet has always been about the music, about the songs. And we take more of a jazz approach. And like if you hear Try Face Boogie from, you know, from Sailing Shoes, what's it sound like uh, the next time we play it? Right. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, you guys uh, revisit your songs too. So some, sometimes you'll have a song yeah. like Try, Try Face Boogie show up again a few albums later. And you're like, oh, okay, that's where they are now. Yeah. And I hope, uh, I suspect we're going to have a, a song that not a lot of people have heard of Lowell's on this next studio record that we do. So um, there's always surprises and things, but uh, the main surprise for me was when Lowell and I first started this band in 1969. We talked about the um, the elasticity of the group. Uh, do we need horns? Do we need another keyboard? Do we need another guitar player? Do we? Uh, what music are we uh, influenced by at the moment or do you think we all influence other musicians we thought we would and we did Rolling Stones um, a lot of English bands uh, uh, I had a chance to, to thank uh, Jimmy Page for for his tip of the hat to Little Feet uh, right. on a, a level of and then and Robert Palmer as well I mean these are uh, I mean from from Led Zeppelin um now, John said some nice things about me. Um, we're, we're part of what Keith Richards, when he drew me close to him in, in a dressing room down in uh, in Amsterdam, just outside of Amsterdam at Eden Hall, Drop Eden Hall, he said, 
as I'm gushing, Keith, oh my gosh, it's Keith. He goes, oh, mate, we're all part of the same cloth. In other words, welcome to the club. Right. And I think I could just end it there, Mark, because that's... Yeah, that's great. That is, that's the club we belong to, man. I'm very proud to be a part of it. Well, I'm glad to have you part of it, too. And I really appreciate you talking to me about this and talking to all of us. Uh, and uh, you gave us a lot of insight into some pretty great music. So I look forward to hearing hearing those that upcoming record with the blues musician and the studio album. And, you know, maybe you guys will bring a little feedback to Chicago and, you know, everywhere else soon, too, I hope. That's it for episode 112 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Bill Payne for taking us inside the creative dynamics of a great American band, Little Feet, while sharing his own deep musical knowledge. Look around for copies of Rhino's 3LP Black Friday Record Store Day release live at Manchester Free Trade Hall 1977. And to hear the band three years earlier, seek out the previous Black Friday RSD release, Electrif Lycanthrope, live at Ultrasonic Studios 1974, a hot double album from the Feetstone Fail Me Now era. Go to littlefeet.net to buy music and merch and to get more info about the band and its tour dates. On the Rolling Into 2024 tour, Little Feet will be playing at the Joy Theater in New Orleans on December 29th, the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas on December 30th, and the Longhorn Ballroom in Dallas on New Year's Eve. Follow littlefeet underscore official on Instagram. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, a veritable rock and roll doctor behind the boards. Special shout out to Linda Reinish and Mark Jacob, who became official Carol Pop friends by paying $60, that's $5 a month for a year, to support this podcast. You can do the same on the episode link or by going to carolpop.com. We're dedicated to keeping Carol Pop free and sustainable, and we appreciate your help. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.